This morning at Mark chapter 14, still in this chapter together. This morning I'll be reading uh, verse 43 through 52. Mark chapter 14, verse 43. I'll start there and end at the end of verse 52. Or it should be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. Listen to this. This is a really good story. It might not seem that way. I guarantee you it ends in a way you're not expecting. You're going to have to wait for it. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's not what you were expecting to hear this morning, was it? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that we have the privilege of not only singing to you and acknowledging that it's nothing but the blood that can take away our sin. We can hear also about how Christ has made us one. Oh, God, We ask that you would help us to understand this passage, that you really would act on us during this time, that you would work in us, that you would take your word and drive it deep into us, that it would change us and make us new people, ready for this week, ready for the challenges, ready for the changes, ready for the struggles, ready for the hardships, ready for the joys. Make us ready. And Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that even though you are the king, that you didn't come to this universe like a boss that we know. That you came as a servant. Holy Spirit, do what you can do. Make us to know this passage. Make the truth of it to gain traction in our lives. We pray this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your glory, your ultimate glory, your forever glory, and our good. Amen. Mark's story really is a beautiful story. If you haven't been here for a long time, we've been rummaging through this book. 
We haven't covered every little detail in Mark's gospel. I've been saving some things for a future series, perhaps next summer. But we've been going through this short story of Mark. It's 16 chapters. Chapter-wise, it's the shortest of the gospels. And it is a beautiful story. And I don't want you to forget, as we've been going through Mark's gospel together, there is a distinct purpose. God has given us this gospel account so that we might get to see, we might get to observe God's victorious assault on the kingdom of darkness. Everything in this gospel is fitting together. It's telling you a story, a beautiful story of God assaulting the kingdom of darkness victoriously in what Christ has done. And he's given it to us so that we can watch it, we can observe it, we can read about it, we can think about it chapter by chapter, story by story. Because he wants us, as his people, he wants us to be encouraged. And oftentimes we're not. And many times we're not encouraged, and it's for all the wrong reasons. And God gives us these accounts to remind us of all these things. We are here at Mark, it's basically at the end. We're less than 15 hours away from the crucifixion. We're not far. But what I want to show you from this passage today, what I want you to see, what I want you to know, is that a forsaken Christ is betrayed. That's what I want you to take out of here. That's what I want you to meditate on. That's what I want you to wrestle with. That's what I want you to think about in relationship to your family, in relationship to your job, in relationship to your friends, in relationship to your neighbors. That a forsaken Christ is betrayed. Here's the story. Let's dive in. It's only a few hours after the supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. Just a few hours. He's not far from where he held the supper with his friends. He's not far from Jerusalem. He's still, in a sense, in the garden. Jesus had just been praying. You can read the previous verses. He'd been crying out to his father three times. He was praying with his father. He was observing his disciples. And right as Jesus observed that his disciples hadn't been praying, and he was finished pouring out his soul to God, he looks up. You can read this in the verses just before I read. He saw that his betrayer was there. We pick up today right there. Judas appears. Judas comes to meet Jesus, and notice what the text tells you. In verse 43 it says, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Now, those of you that know the Bible a little bit know that Judas is the guy that betrayed Jesus. But you've got to remember, the disciples didn't. Mark is adding this in here to shock you, to shock me, to remind us that here is Judas. He's one of the twelve. He was one of the, the ones that were on the inner circle. He was the one that came to meet Jesus. And he wasn't alone. He brought a whole mob with him. He brought a little militia. The text says that he brought with him uh, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. Some scholars interpret it this way, that the men that were with Judas were the pastors and the lay leaders and those that held position. Judas and this little tribe come to Jesus, and they are carrying weapons. They have swords, they have clubs, they have torches so that they can see. 
and they are right here to meet Jesus. Judas had prepared them before. He said, look, I'm going to give you a sign. This is how you're going to know. When we go into the garden, when we go to that spot where Jesus is going to be, this is how you're going to know him. Here's the sign. I am going to kiss him. And the next step in the story is that that Judas, almost like he couldn't contain himself, rushes to meet Jesus. And there, he walked right up to him and said, Hello, teacher. Hello, rabbi. And then he kissed him. And the language is very descriptive. It's not just that Judas gave Jesus the normal greeting of just like a little peck on the cheek. This was like Judas really gave him a warm kiss. It was custom back then. Like we might shake hands, high fives. Judas comes to Jesus and gives him a warm kiss. And then he says in verse 46, here he is, here's the man, take and seize him. And the men come to take Jesus and they lay hold of Jesus. They seize him with their hands. They come and they put their hands on the Savior, your Savior, your King. They literally reach out and grab him. And the story ends with this young man who didn't have a whole lot of clothes on in the first place. He was also seized by these men. And he ended up breaking free, much like you might break a tackle on the football field. And pushes them away. And off goes his garment, and he runs away. The last image of this section I read is this man running away without clothes on. That's the story that we're looking at this morning. That's the nuts and bolts. That's what happens in the verses. But now it's time to dive in a little bit more. Because what really stands out when we look at this is not just the story and the complexity of it, right? What really stands out are all the responses that people give. You realize when you think about Mark's gospel, here we are in chapter 14. Chapter 16 is about the resurrection. Jesus has performed and and he's enacted all of his teachings. Jesus has already taught about the Sermon on the Mount. He's already taught about how things should live and things should look and and how things should work in the kingdom. Jesus has taught about all kinds of parables. He's taught about how we should live together. He's taught all kinds of stories and all kinds of ways. He summoned his disciples together. We are at the very end. Jesus certainly still teaches us things as he goes to the cross and is crucified. But there's a sense in which we are pretty much past all of his public teaching. He's told his disciples everything that he wanted them to know. Even in a very short period of time, if you go to read John 13 through John 17, what you'll find is is Jesus' condensed teaching of what he wanted his disciples to know. And it's rich with doctrine. Rich. And here we come to this part of Jesus' life after he's taught his disciples and anyone else that would hear, after he's given them the teaching that they need, 
We come here to this section in this story, and what stands out are the responses to Jesus. The responses to his teaching. There are a few that I'll mention for you. The first response that we see is one that might be quite obvious to you. It's Judas' response. And his response was one of betrayal. You know what it's like to be betrayed, don't you? Just this week I saw, I was witness to this. This didn't happen in my home yet, although the days are coming. I was witnessing two teenagers arguing for who was going to get the front seat, who was going to ride shotgun. And like normal, the one on the outside of the car was saying to the one on the inside of the car and the shotgun, hey, get out of the front, it's my turn. There was a sense in which the one on the outside felt as though they were betrayed. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about that kind of betrayal. But all of us have this sense of betrayal. We've been betrayed sometimes by trivial things and things not going the way that we want. And we feel betrayed. The betrayal that is described here is the betrayal in which you have been honest, you have been truthful, you have been cautious in putting yourself out there. And what you received at a very, very, very important moment of your life was betrayal. Do you know that betrayal? The betrayal in which you were cautious, the betrayal in which yet you were honest, the betrayal in which you put yourself out there and and you opened up. And then not long after that, at a very important moment in your life, there was betrayal. And, and, And it could be betrayal because promises weren't kept. It could be betrayal because someone had pledged faithfulness and then not. Those kind of stories are all too familiar, aren't they? You know what it's like for someone to pledge faithfulness to you and then not be faithful at all. You know what it's like to be lied to, what it's like to have someone abuse the power that they have or abuse the position they have or abuse the authority that they have? And thinking about your own experience, can you just imagine what it must have been like be Jesus can you imagine the hurt that he must have felt seeing this man Judas one of the twelve betraying him and oh by the way he knew Jesus knew it was coming just like in our lives when you finally decide to open up and you finally decide to be honest and you finally decide to let someone in and then they end up betraying you or lying to you or abusing power You were always cautious on the front end because you were afraid of what might happen. Well, Jesus knew that this was going to happen. He still put himself out there. And here's Judas betraying Jesus. We want to bring it home. If you want to think about it in another way, not only can you imagine about how much this hurt Jesus, but besides that, Think about how much we have hurt Jesus. 
how much we have betrayed our Savior. How much we have received from him. How much we have pledged to him. Only in our lives we find it so easy to betray him. Well, that's the first response Judas betrays. Here's another. The guards come out to fight. The little militia that's with Judas, they are ready. The guards are ready. They are ready to throw down. They are ready to go to war. Jesus says, did you think that you were coming to arrest a, 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 a thief that was going to try to run away? One of the scholars says that the best way to translate this is, is, to, is that Jesus was saying, did you think that you were coming to try to capture a terrorist? Did you think that you really need all these weapons? Did you need force? And Jesus says, well, why didn't you come during the day? I've been with you all the time. I've been in Jerusalem. I've been teaching. I've been teaching in the daytime. I've been teaching publicly. I've done everything out in the open. What are you doing? What are you doing with these swords? What are you doing with these clubs? Do you think you really need them? They wanted to fight. I was with you all the time, and I haven't done anything. Why didn't you seize me then during the day? Can you imagine how, how that must have just pricked their heart? How that, much of, how that, how that must have just hit the, the militia in, just right between the eyes? Like, wait a minute. And then they would have to recommit, right? Yeah, you're right, Jesus. You were teaching openly. But we're here. And I've got this sword. I've got this club. I'm not going anywhere. Those of you that know the Lord Jesus and believe in the Lord Jesus, do you remember what it's like? Will you think a minute? Will you remember what it's like to think like a non-believer? Will you remember what it's like to think like a non-believer? Remember before you became a Christian and how you were really bringing all of this fight to Jesus? How you were bringing all of this fear to Jesus? You were really looking for a fight. Now, you didn't think of it that way in the moment. You didn't think of it that way when you were confronted with who Christ is and what he says. You didn't think of it that way at all. But have you forgotten that what you really brought to the table was you wanted a fight? Do you remember when it started to dawn on you that, oh yeah, all this stuff I thought about Jesus was just a caricature of him. It wasn't the way he really is. Do you remember how you had a whole set of assumptions? And do you remember the day or the week or the months or the years when you started to realize that you're the one that had all kinds of assumptions in coming to the Lord Jesus? It's true. Remember, you didn't think of it as a fight. You didn't think of it as that you were afraid. But now on this side, you realize, oh yeah, I had all these assumptions I was bringing. And I didn't want to admit them. I didn't want to admit that I was wrong. I didn't want to open up and listen. Remember the time when you started to realize that you weren't really all that objective? 
when you were considering Christ? Do you remember that? That really what you had in your mind was a whole lot of assumptions and you weren't really objective in processing anything. You weren't neutral intellectually. You aren't neutral morally. That you really had your own worldview. You had your own way of defining all of your terms. And you brought all of that with you to Christ. Do you remember that? And for those of you that know the Lord Jesus, and, and if you're honest, if I'm honest, this whole fighting mentality is not too far from us as believers either, is it? We often think like this, that Jesus needs to be defended as if his kingdom is dependent on me. Jesus needs to be defended as if his kingdom is dependent on my ability to argue and articulate and defend. As if his kingdom is ever in doubt. Oftentimes we live always ready to fight. Thinking that if I don't do this, if I don't say this, if I don't do it in just the right way, then the future of God's kingdom is unsure. Now, beloved, please hear me. We need to grow in our understanding of how to defend our faith. The Bible summons us to defend our faith. We must always be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us that is all true. I'm just getting a little bit deeper and saying, but how much of the time are our motives from the spot of it as if, well, if I don't say this, if I don't do this, then his kingdom is in jeopardy. That I'm the one that has to keep this going. How many times do we lash out at people? How many times do we try to one-up? How many times do we try to get the first strike in? How many times do we do that? Do you ever find yourself being irritable? Do you ever find yourself getting all worked up talking about Christianity or talking about your Savior with other people? We like to fight too. It's true. We get nervous and we get scared. And sometimes it's with the best of motives and sometimes it's not. You see, the truth is that I would tell you that the militia brought a Swiss Army knife to a nuclear airstrike. But that's not really, that's not really the case. It's more like it's more like they brought a matchstick to a cosmic, supernatural battle. And they were like, hey, let's go. Let's do this. And Jesus is the one that holds every molecule together. Jesus is the one that gives them breath. And they think, well, this little club, this is going to do some damage. We're ready to fight. Got my Swiss Army knife. It's a joke, isn't it? It's a joke. Well, look at how the disciples respond. We've looked at Judas and he betrays and how that relates to us. We've thought about the guards and how they want to fight and how that relates to us, whether you believe or whether you don't believe, how we always have a tendency to fight. Well, look at the disciples. The rest of them scatter. Look at verse 50. 
They all left him and fled. They ran away. They were weak. They were scared. As a matter of fact, the early fathers of our church thought that this guy that you see running away without clothes at the end of the story, the early church fathers were convinced that this was Mark, the author of the story. They thought that that this was Mark, that Mark was finding a way to subtly put himself in the story as if to say, me too. Everybody denied him. Everybody ran away. Everybody scattered. Me too, Mark says. You know what it's like to scatter, don't you? You ever responded to God in that way? To run? We all scatter, don't we? For us, when things get a little bit rough or things get a little bit tense, we just decide we're going to jet. We're going to leave. We're going to get out. We're not sure what to do with God. We're not sure what to, how to handle this particular circumstance of our life, this particular time of our lives, this challenge of our lives. And we just think, well, we're just, we're, I just need to go. We struggle with guilt or we struggle with shame and we think to ourselves, I just need to run away from God. I need to avoid Him rather than coming to Him, rather than worshiping. We just figured if something gets hard, it's just time for me to go. That's another way that sin comes out of us, isn't it? Even when you have struggles with those who are closest with you, when the moment gets a little bit tense, we're ready to lash out. We're ready to kind of give a verbal jab and then run. And not wait. Well, do you notice how Jesus responds to all this? It's really quite shocking. And it's easy to let the words of Christ just kind of wash over you without even thinking. Jesus responds in this way. This is what he says in verse 49. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Now that is an astonishing statement. That is an astonishing statement. It should shock you. That here is Christ receiving all of these responses, and this is what he says. Let Scripture be fulfilled. You see, when we first hear that word, when we first think of that phrase, we think, here we go. This is a great phrase by which we show people that the Bible is consistent and the Bible is trustworthy. As the Bible predicted that someone would betray, as the Bible predicted that the disciples would scatter, here's our evidence, and this is why we trust the Bible. That's how we initially hear this. And by the way, it's not wrong to hear it that way. The Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is true. The Bible predicts what's going to happen, and it happens. But there's something far more going on here. This statement of Jesus is an act of devotion. This is his heart. As Judas is betraying and as the militia wants to fight and as Peter wants to fight, he also picked up the sword, right? He wanted a war. As all the other disciples scattered, Jesus says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is the devotion of his heart. He was accepting the will of God. He was submitting to his Father 
and this is how we are supposed to live. Again, I know, I know we typically don't think of it this way, but this week you are going to have hundreds of opportunities to say, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Now I would encourage you not so much to say that in public if someone's going to hear you that has no idea what you're talking about. But I'm telling you, this is an act of devotion. This is how we are supposed to live. When things get tense in my marriage and we have problems and we struggle, we go back to the Bible and we read what the Bible says about marriage. And what that says is that I have to, I have to love my wife and die for my wife as Christ's love for the church. That means I have to die, right? Another way to say that, let the scripture be fulfilled. When you're struggling with communication in your relationships and you realize that communication is not just one way, meaning when you say the words, it's done, that communication is actually saying the words in such a way so that the person you're talking to understands what you're saying and what you're meaning. When you have breakdown of communication, you got to go back and you got to talk and you got to explain and you got to say, I don't understand what you're saying and I don't understand what you're saying and then you work it out. Why? Because the scripture must be fulfilled. We are to talk with one another and communicate with one another. And that's not easy. When you are overloaded with the weight of life and what's going on, and you finally get to the point in which you say, I need to give all this to God. Remember last week we're talking about how Jesus commanded us to pray and to commend our lives to God and to talk to God about our lives? When we begin to talk to God about our lives. Guess what? The scripture must be fulfilled. The Bible says, cast all your cares on God because he cares for you. When you do that, the scripture is being fulfilled. When you look back at your life and you're reflecting and you're pondering and you're thinking and you see growth, because there are going to be times in your life where you see growth. Christ is more precious to you now than he was before. Your commitments of life, your priorities are arranged. You see growth in your life. You're a more loving person now than you were 10 years ago, 5 years ago, maybe even 5 days ago. You're a more patient person. When you see growth in your life, when you're more self-controlled, guess what's happening? The scripture is being fulfilled. It's an act of devotion. You are recognizing that God's word is true and that you're going to live by it. That it's going to cause fruit to come in your life. When you're not worried about tomorrow and you're able just to focus on the challenges of today, the scripture is being fulfilled. When you're able to forgive and when you're able to acknowledge that you have been wronged and you're able to absorb to some extent the cost of that hurt, the scripture is being fulfilled. You are learning how to forgive. You see, when Jesus says that the scripture must be fulfilled, it's not just an act of devotion. It's also something bigger. When he says the scripture must be fulfilled, he is saying that there is a higher, there is a more gripping story of what's going on here than what, we must, than what we might just read in when we see the responses. There's something much bigger going on. There's a greater story that's happening. 
You see, beloved, there is nothing that can stop the kingdom of God. Nothing. The kingdom of God is not ever in doubt. And it never will be. Jesus is on the throne right now. His kingdom is sure. It is that way. You may not feel that way. You may not always act in accordance with that truth. But hear it. The kingdom of Jesus is not in doubt. And it never will be. It never will be. Even if everybody forsakes Christ. Right here. Mark 14. Everybody's gone. He has begun to smell hell. Remember from the garden in his prayer to God? His disciples are scattering. They're denying the kingdom is not in jeopardy. It wasn't in jeopardy in Mark 14, and it's not in jeopardy today. The truth of this passage is that it's showing us the gospel. The only way to cut through our sin and all of our sinful responses, the only way to cut through all of our betraying of Christ, the only way to get through all of our desire to fight, the only way to get through our desire to run away, to scatter, is that we must realize that this story is about the Lord Jesus Christ. One scholar put it this way. All of those in the story are wrong and they all get away. They're all wrong and they all run away. And Jesus is all in the right and he gets the judgment. Everybody is free even though they're disobeying. And Christ is taken even though he is obeying. You see, he is the substitute for sinners. He's your substitute and my substitute. And the only thing that's going to get through all the betraying that we do, and the only thing that's going to get through all the fighting that we want to do, externally, internally, and the only thing that's going to keep us from scattering is to realize that Christ's death is exactly what I need. It's the only way that's going to change me. It's the only way that's going to keep me from running. It's the only way that's going to keep me from fighting is to know that he is the Savior. You see this word in verse 42, or this chapter, betrayed? It's the exact same word that is used in Romans 8, where the Father delivered up, the same word, delivered up, didn't spare his own Son, so that with him, the Father and the Son together, so that they might give you everything freely. You see, a forsaken Christ is betrayed, and that betrayal is being delivered over and being not spared, so that you might have life. Judas' act of betraying is God's act of deliverance. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for letting us look at these stories together. Lord, we confess before you that we have heard a lot of Christ's teaching. And there's much within us that still wants to betray you.
our lives are inconsistent. And not only that, Lord, we we often want to fight. We want to fight with you. We want to fight with each other. We want to live as if everything that we're doing is way, way more important. As if your kingdom were in doubt ever. Lord, help us to see that you indeed use us, that you command us to serve you, that you command us to live for you, that you command us to obey, you command us to give a reason for the hope that is within us. But it's never because your kingdom is in doubt. It's because your kingdom is not in doubt. And that you want us to live in a way that is consistent with Jesus being on the throne. Not being afraid. Not wanting to fight. You know, Lord, we confess that we scatter. We acknowledge that oftentimes when things get hard, when difficult circumstances in our life come about, we just, we just want to run. And Lord, we pray that the words that our Savior spoke, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, must be fulfilled, will be fulfilled, that we would realize that truth in our lives that all of our betrayal, that all of our fighting, that all of our scattering is to bring us back to the cross. It's to bring us back to our Savior. It's to be reminded that you didn't spare him so that you might give us everything freely. Lord, help us to see the good news that's here. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict us of our sin and give us the power to acknowledge it and turn from it and to serve and live with fresh hope that the kingdom is not in doubt. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for not sparing your own son that we might have life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.